Hey, and welcome to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. At Cows, we like to keep things simple. We are committed to verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible to help people know, love, and become fully committed followers of Jesus. It is our prayer and hope that this message challenges, encourages, and equips you to that end. Paul, we're going through the book of Malachi. Uh, We've called it Covenantal Faithfulness, if I recall correctly. Um, And... This is week three of a five-part series, and week one, we had Johnny Coe kick us off, really lay the covenantal spine to this theme that we're looking at with covenantal faithfulness, taking us through from the beginning with Genesis all the way through to the covenant that we're talking about here, um, the Mosaic covenant in the context of Malachi. And then also recall last week uh, that Dave... Durkan basically finished off chapter one of Malachi and brought us into chapter two as well. And specifically, you recall from last week how Malachi was addressing the failure of the priesthood, of the priests in Israel at that time. Uh, One particular point there that's really a segue for our time here today is found in chapter two, verse eight. I'm going to be really glued to this text for today, so please... um, if you have a Bible at all, get it open. And shock horror, I don't have slides for us. I do apologize. <laughs> um, chapter 2, verse 8 from last week. David can unpack this for us a bit. But it says that um, basically the result of the failure of God's teaching of the word through the priests resulted in the stumbling of many. It says this, you have turned aside from the way. Again, that's to the priests, right? To the pastors, to the elders, if you will, of the um, covenant community there in Israel. You have turned aside from the way and you have caused many to stumble by your instruction. Now, just to footnote this comment here about leadership amongst God's people. Um, it's examples like this from the Old Testament that really give us pause about the high and holy calling that it is to be a leader within a church community today, to be a leader within the covenant community of God's people even today. James 3.1 comes to mind. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Why? Well, here's one reason from the word of God, from the word of Malachi. Because teachers have a certain degree of influence over people. And here in this case of post-exilic Israel, you know, they've come out of Babylon, um, come out of their exile there, back to the land. Here we see that the influence of these priests is affecting the people. It's causing them to stumble. Now, we could hang out here and spend a whole sermon talking about leadership within a covenant community, within Old Testament, within the New Testament, within the church context of today. Uh, We won't, but let me just say this. Uh, There are many ways people in positions of leadership can cause others to stumble. But I think in our day and age, uh, here today, one of the most obvious ways, and look, there's so many, but I'm just picking on one. One of the ways that this happens is by remaining silent on social issues. I'm not saying that the pulpit should be a place of politicking, not at all. Um, you know, we hope in eternity, not in a term, whether you're Labor, Liberal, Independent or Green. That's not what I'm saying here. But with so many political issues, cultural issues and social issues of our time, touching on things that the Bible has things directly to say about, when we as the teachers of God's Word in this particular age that we've been called to serve in fail to engage with any of it in any sense, 
and avoid the clear teaching of God's words on such matters, then I think we're doing a disservice to the church. It's not easy to talk about these subjects, not at all. Uh, I get that. I've been publicly ridiculed for it. I know Calvary Chapel has in the past. We've been written up on certain websites for teaching certain things that we do. And I know other churches in Newcastle that have been lambasted through local media um, for teaching certain doctrines. But all of that to say, it's not necessarily what church leaders have to say that can cause people to stumble. It's what they don't say. It's what they don't say. We're a city on a hill, a light to the nations, salt to bland food. If we don't speak, who will? I've just come off a week uh, away, <laughs> seven talks back to back to a pretty hostile audience of high school students. And there was a question asked earlier on in that week, do we engage with these hot cultural issues like same-sex marriage? Abortion is huge now. It's kind of doing the rounds again because of Roe v. Wade in the US and other questions about transgenderism, sexuality, identity, et cetera, et cetera. And there, there is an argument to be had about needing to be very sensitive about these issues and potentially causing more damage and doing more harm than good if we don't engage with them. Uh, but my response to that is if we don't speak, who will? Who will ever share this other side? Now, how we speak, what we do with this pulpit, that's that's all wisdom for the local church to to discuss. But if we don't speak, who will? So again, I think leaders can cause people to stumble not only by what they say, but what they fail to say as well. All of that, though, is not unrelated to our text. It actually runs as a segue straight through to what we're looking at here uh, in chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. What we have in this passage is different illustrations of how God's covenant people stumble. So we got it set up last week that the priesthood has failed and it's causing people to stumble. Well, how? Three examples that we have here, three illustrations of how God's people are stumbling. First, this would be my outline on the overhead if I had it, any note takers. First is disunity, verse 10. Second is idolatry, verses 11 through 12. And third is divorce, verses 13 through 16. Disunity, idolatry, divorce. These are the kinds of realities that result when the ministry of God's word is not holding the people of God together. There's many more, but these are the three that we see here in the book of Malachi. Now, again, as illustrations of stumbling, each of these realities, they're huge realities, uh, both then and now, obviously, in the life of the church. Big realities that if not handled with Tenderness and care and sensitivity and biblical precision from the pulpit can cause harm, reopen old wounds for some people and, and ironically even cause some to stumble. So I want to just say from the, the get-go here that, again, thanks, John, for squeezing me in on this particular passage of Malachi. But um, I just want to say from the get-go that what we're going to be doing today is talking, well, I'm going to just do my best to lay out the will of God in these realities I'm not going to chase every possibility, every exception clause, every but what about. Um, and the Bible does have a lot to say on those things. It really does. But I'm not. we're just not going to go there. I'm just going to state the will of God as I understand it from the text and why I think we should obey the will of God. So that needs to be the big disclaimer on everything we're looking at here um, to just remind yourself because if you're, if you're tracking as we go through this, you hopefully will have a lot of questions. But just remember that disclaimer over the front of all of this. So the Bible has a lot to say on that. We won't dive into all of that um, as we get going here. But 
What I want to do just quickly is kick off in a word of prayer and we'll then open up verse 10 and look at this first reality in the life of the covenant people of God, disunity. So, Father in heaven, we just ask now that you would speak um, through whatever it is that you've laid on my heart to share. Father, I pray that my words would be few, that yours would be many, that you would be uh, just working this word into the people here as needed. I don't know necessarily how that's needed, but there's just so much here. Um, so, Father, I just really do pray that it would be um, a challenge and an encouragement and, Lord, that people would be equipped with truth that they would walk into their workplaces with tomorrow, whether that's at home or in an office. Amen. Okay, so disunity, verse 10. Have we not all one Father? I'm reading from the ESV. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? There's a couple of things here. First, notice the use of the inclusive pronouns, we and us. Straight away, that tells us something unique here about Malachi. Often prophets come from the outside in with a word that just lands on the people, but Malachi is kind of including himself here. He's kind of including himself as the target of what he's saying. And what he's saying here, again, uh, using, I think it's been said, uh, I think John mentioned this earlier on in his message, but it's this Socratic method of question and answer. It's, it's rhetoric. It's quite an effective way to raise the points that he's trying to raise here. He uses this Socratic method of question and answer um, and asks this question, have we not all one father? And this takes us right back to Malachi chapter 1, verse 6, uh, where we read this, a son honours his father and a servant his master. If, I, if then I am a father, where is my honour? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. Now that cross-reference is helpful because it helps us identify who it is we're talking about here. Who is this father? You know, Father Abraham had many sons, had many sons, said Father Abraham. We know the song. It actually does have biblical significance with respect to the covenant. But is Abraham the father? Is Adam the father? Son of Adam, daughter of Eve, C.S. Lewis, Narnia. Um, I think because of this passage here in Malachi 1.6 and some other reasons we'll unpack here in a moment, that this is actually referring to Jehovah, to God, our Father. I think that just fits with the local context not only, again, of 1.6 but of what we see next. Has not one God created us? He's using rhetoric to, to appeal to the unity that these people have. Has, have you not one Father? Have you not one God who created us? One Father, one Creator. And this idea that this one father is God establishes well the contrast we're about to get here as we talk about the, the daughters of foreign gods in the next verse. So children of God, have we not one father, verse 10, daughters of foreign gods, verse 11, so that you can start to see this tension that's being established here. So, all right, understanding that God's in view here, um, it, it also makes sense why, you know, if we have one Father, one created God, why this would be a profaning thing to the covenant of God as well. And that's the, the second half here in verse 10. Now, this word faithful, faithlessness, uh, it's been, it may be translated in your particular English version as treacherous as well. So faithless or treacherous. Uh, it's the Hebrew word borgod. Well, God, now you're going to get sick of that word by the end of this talk. But, uh, well, God, it's, it's a verb. It's an active doing word. Um, so faithlessness, treachery, 
it is in some sense an active thing. It's this, this Borgod is active within the covenant community of Israel here. These people are doing Borgod to one another. They are Borgoding one another. <laughs> Probably should not be applied in English suffix to a Hebrew word, but you get the point. Now, there's 48 occurrences of Borgod in the Hebrew Old Testament. Five of them occur here in the book of Malachi, and all five occur in these short seven verses that Tony read out for us, 10 through 16. This is the thing, again, um, you know, Bible study highlighting people. This is just makes your highlighter go mad when you're highlighting things because there is pattern here for a purpose. We see this word Borgod, treacherous, faithlessness, in verse 10, it's in verse 11, it's in verse 14, it's in verse 15 and 16. Borgod, faithlessness, treachery, letting others down, dishonesty, breaking good faith. This is the cord, the chain connecting and holding together the three realities we have identified as our outline. Disunity, idolatry, divorce. In other words, disunity, idolatry, divorce, these are different instances of Borgod. Different ways this concept of faithlessness and treachery towards God and towards each other can and do manifest in the life of God's people. And of note, well, God, it's related to another Hebrew word that's very similar, baget, and that word means garment. Again, from what Tony read out, that is a significant term here in this short section of Scripture mentioned twice in verse 13 with the covering of the altar with tears, like a garment, and verse 16, with the covering uh, of a garment with violence. But for now, just see how this aspect of baguette brings the idea of treachery to this aspect of faithlessness. And you can start to see why in the English they're using two different words here. But God refers to bad faith between people in the sense of covering up the truth of their deeds, their hearts, towards one another and ultimately towards the Lord himself. Make sense? So again, that's why Bogard needs multiple English words to try and unpack the meaning of it. This is something insidious. It's not just faithlessness, it's, it's actually bad faith. That's Bogard, breaking faith, covering it up. And because it occurs here again five times, it's present in all of those three realities. So if I had another slide, this would be slide two. And what we would look up there on the screen and see is disunity, not just generally, but disunity amongst God's covenant people in the sense of their general relationships to one another. Disunity amongst God's covenant people in the sense of their general relationships to each other. Secondly, idolatry against God himself in the sense that Israel was here breaking the terms of the Mosaic covenant by taking pagan daughters of foreign gods to be their wives. And thirdly, divorce being that which annuls the sanctity of the marriage covenant between a husband and his wife. The disunity is amongst, the idolatry is against, and the divorce is that which annuls. Okay. Well, back here now in verse 10, with that kind of background to what we're about to get into here, we, we see again these rhetorical questions which address the issue of disunity, of Bogard, within the community of God's covenant people. A disunity that profanes the unity that they have with their covenant, the covenant of their fathers. Israel was called to be a covenant community, a people under one God. And this community in various stages and various places was to be orderly, regulated by government, the law, the prophets, Torah. 
And, and this community, you know, when it was in harmony, obedient to the will and to the witness of God, Israel was not by God. It was a place of shalom, a place of peace, a place of wholeness, a place of completion, a place of goodness, reciprocity, restoration. It was a place where children related to parents in a covenant of honour and care, a place where husbands were to wives and wives were to husbands in a way that was a covenant of humble and godly leadership and submission, a place where priests to the people of God were in a faithful stewardship and obedience of and to and through the word of God, a place where employees were to employers those who uphold the integrity of their business, a place where citizens were to members of as were as members to their state within a nation, paying their dues, so on and so forth. You can start to see what this idea of a shalom, a peaceful and ordered, a structured community looks like that Borgad rips against all of that. This was and remains, in a, in a general sense, the calling of God's people in whatever communities we happen to find ourselves in: home, work, local church here at Cows, globally as the capital C Church of God's people the body of Christ, Australia, so on and so forth. So, folks, we are not a bipartisan people as the people of God. We're not. Uh, We are partisan under one, namely the one Father, the one Creator God. Of course, there are differences amongst us, and these differences are to be celebrated. I mean, we have different callings, different gifts. People of all kinds are identified throughout the New Testament as you know, with their own unique idiosyncrasies and everything that make up this eclective body of Christ that can serve the purposes of God in unique and wonderful and marvellous ways. So whatever creed, whatever colour, whatever code, whatever country, whatever calling, whatever you want to put in there, none of these differences between us as God's people get close to that which unites us, Christ. And there's many obvious ways we could talk about that, but I'll just let you understand with the world we're dealing with today how people have been so divided, even within the church, generally, locally, whatever. Division is rife in our culture and to see the way it's affecting the church is a really sad thing when we neglect the fact that what is greater in us, Christ, is so much more as a point of unity than that which divides us. Paul to the Philippians, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, listen to his rhetorical questions, friends. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. What mind? The mind that is nothing like Bogad. A mind that doesn't cut across each other in bad faith. A mind that doesn't act treacherously to one another. A mind that doesn't look out for its own, but to the interests of others. A mind like that of Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, became in the form of a man, humbled himself to the point of death, and not just any death, to the point of death on a common criminal's cross. And all of the injustice, you want to talk about social justice or injustice, all of the universal weight of injustice that fell on his shoulders That's what mind we're called, that's the mind we're called to have. That mind, a mind that when exercised by God's people, yields a community of shalom, of peace, of harmony, of goodwill, of restitution, of restoration, agape 
love, self-sacrificing love. This is the will of God as it concerns you and I. This is the argument here in Malachi chapter 2, verse 10. We are united under one Father, one Creator God, that we would be a community, a covenant people of Shalom. But that's not happening in post-exilic Israel. Malachi calls it out. Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? It wasn't happening then in Israel. It's not happening today. In so many ways and places and situations for the church. You know, we talk about identity politics and cultural tribalism. The sad reality is it's just really getting harder and harder and harder and harder to distinguish the church from the world in this particular area of disunity. Israel is not a community of shalom, but a community of Bogad, and we need to make sure that we don't follow suit as the church. It's, you know, it's like when everyone's doing their own thing, it's like when the tide goes out and you've just got these puddles with, you know, fish flapping about with their own significance. That's kind of the situation here. It's just fragmented social atomization that gives greater credence to that which divides us and that which unites us, which you can see where we're going with this in terms of what this is saying about God himself. No community, no communis, co-together munis duties, no common unity of duties of any sense, no community at all, no togetherness in word, in deed, in promise. When God's people are not held together by the word of God, thank you, priests, Malachi 2.8, when that's not happening, they stumble. And this is one very obvious way that it happens. Let me just break it down and make it a little bit more tangible, then we'll move on. Um, what does Bogod look like in the nuclear family? Well, it looks like a mum or a dad, <laughs> exhausted from work, coming home and saying, I can't do this, I'm not doing that, I'm tired, sorry. And little Johnny just wants to play and we just refuse to be responsible adults and play with our kid. We're breaking that relational covenant with our children. That's just one little way you could see this. This looks like a husband who's dissatisfied with the wife of his youth, so he just runs a town with some other lady. This looks like a son or a daughter with an aging parent who finds them interfering with their way of life, so they put them out of sight, out of mind. Breaking the cohesion that we have as God's covenant people. The fabric, the tapestry of a community, whether that's the family, the home, the church, this tapestry as a community, this covenant-keeping, word-keeping, promise-keeping, duty-keeping, relational-keeping tapestry, when that begins to unravel, when people can no longer be counted upon because they don't do good to one another, they don't look out to their needs of the other people around them, the whole thing starts to come apart. Another analogy, if you drive out of this church car park this afternoon and nobody's obeying stop signs, it's crazy. That would be another example of this. That's literally anarchy. There needs to be some sort of cohesion to hold us together, some sort of social contract, but the word or the language that I prefer to use is what we see here, namely covenant. Disunity is the default of godless communities. And this idea of godlessness, it just flows right into our second point here, disunity to idolatry. Verses 11 through 12. Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. When the word does not hold the people of God together, there is stumbling. 
social atomization, a profaning of the covenant. That's verse 10. That's what we just looked at. Now in verse 11, we see that there is also a profaning of the sanctuary where God's people come to worship, what Malachi calls an abomination. When when entering the promised land in Deuteronomy, just to unpack this idea of an abomination and really feel the weight of what Malachi is saying, when, when Israel was entering into the promised land, Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 13 has these strong words to say. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. Hmm, what are you talking about? Okay, there shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens, or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. Do you feel the weight of what Malachi is talking about here when he uses the word abomination? This is puncturing. This is puncturing. This is happening. And he doesn't leave us to wonder if he's referring to all of that that we just said. He may be, but we're not given that data here, so we can't quite tell. What we do have is what we see here in terms of Judah's faithlessness with their defection into paganism in taking the daughters of these foreign gods. So first, we see here this, um, this point about Israel and Jerusalem. Why would you use the two terms there? Is it just trying to reinforce the people of God? I don't think so. I think it's actually really trying to make this point of idolatry, which is the second subheading we're under here, idolatry. By appealing to Israel and Jerusalem, I don't think Malachi was just making a double you know, whammy here. It's not just an emphasis. It's a pointedness in both the breadth of this idolatry against God in, in Israel's defection against God. So that would be Israel, the whole land, and the depth of its defection against God, the depth of its idolatry. Because Jerusalem, yes, the capital of Israel, but Jerusalem remembered 1 Kings 8, 29, the Lord said, my name shall be on that city. So this is wide and deep this is the this is the scope of the defection we're talking about here the, def- the the idolatry of God's people and the second way that we see this defection referenced here uh, is this obvious mention of paganism the charge of intermarriage you see in antiquity the people of a particular deity were commonly referred to as that deity's children uh, the Amorites were called the children of Molech for example obviously the people of Israel were referred to as the children of Yahweh. Verse 10, we just saw, we are we have one father. Now in ancient Israel, it, it was actually permitted for Jews to marry Gentiles, providing they converted to Judaism. Uh, but you could not take a pagan wife. Remember Samson, he had a bit of an issue with this, with that Philistine lady that caused him to turn his heart away from the Lord. Or um, Solomon had 700 of these issues that caused his heart to turn away from the Lord. The stipulates of theocratic Israel, and this is important to hear because I often hear how you know racial and prejudicial the, the Old Testament case law was. It, it's not. The stipulates of theocratic Israel in terms of who you can and can't marry, it was not about ethnicity, it was not about colour, it was not about creed, it was not about race or anything like that. It was all about who is your God? Who do you worship? And when you invite somebody into the closest inner personal relationship that you have known to human existence, namely marriage, that doesn't believe in Yahweh, 
that has that is the daughter of a pagan god, it's it's begard from the beginning. It's bad from the beginning. The whole issue of of marrying rightly was such an important part of Israel's history. There's a whole talk on this. I'll just say a couple of things. Uh, remember when Abraham was going to find a wife for Isaac? He, he makes his servant Eliezer go make this oath to, to go back to the land of Ur of the Chaldees, Abraham's homeland, this little geographical pocket of monotheism to find a worshipper of the one true Father God. And when Eliezer does, he, he finds Rebecca for Isaac and he comes home and redemptive history moves forward. And when Isaac and Rebecca have their child, Jacob, what does Rebecca say? She has him go back from where they came from to find a wife, and so he does. And you remember Jacob's testimony of searching for a wife, which stands in stark contrast to his brother Esau, who had married two pagan wives, two Hittite wives, and Rebecca's like, what am I going to do with you? This principle of, of watch who you marry, it's all throughout the Old Testament, and it's, it's all throughout the New Testament as well. Flirt to convert is just not a good idea. You know, 2 Corinthians 6.14 do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Why is the Bible so insistent upon who you marry? Because believing and unbelieving spouses, the children of the one true and living Father God, and the daughters of foreign gods, when they come together, you don't have shalom. Marriage is hard enough for believers, let alone getting two people together to try and navigate all of life's complexities when they operate in completely different universes with respect to values and beliefs. This is so serious that it makes a shipwreck of many believers. Not everyone, but many believers. That's why the Lord is so strong here in his language of Malachi chapter 2, verse 12. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. This is judgment. Make no mistake about it. This is judgment. To be cut off from the tents of Jacob means in the context of ancient Israel, excommunication. To be cut off from the economy of God's covenant people. Now you might say again, that's pretty harsh, but remember what's been said here. The community of Israel is one family under one father God. By bringing in daughters of pagan gods to the covenant community of God's people, what were these Jewish individuals are essentially saying they were essentially bringing their father, the one true creator God, into the home and into the family of these pagan gods. Jehovah into the family of the Canaanite deities and all of that bankrupt stuff that goes on that we read out before from Deuteronomy. This is getting right to the very name of God himself. This is bald face, blasphemy, or to use Malachi's words, it is profane. The abomination is the idolatry of intermarriage, and the profanity is what flows from that in bringing, in the bringing in of paganism to the holiness of Jehovah. Our actions as God's people have consequences. Uh, it was true then in the sanctuary, and it's true now in the reality that you and I are temples of the living God Himself. We're saved by grace, our sins are forgiven, amen. We're children of the Most High God. And yet so many of us don't pause long enough to consider the reality of what comes with that responsibility of our family name. 
It's truly, truly grievous to me when I hear people professing faith in the finished work of Christ, presuming upon the grace that has saved them. Romans 6.1, shall we keep on sinning so that grace may abound? May it never be. It's the strongest, that may it never be phrase is one of the strongest you can have in the Greek to say no, exclamation mark, underline, bold, italics. No, 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 no. King James actually renders it really well when it says, God forbid. It's a fearful thing to presume upon the grace of God because you make a mockery of that work in your life. And if you're his child, Hebrews 12, 7, what, what dad does in discipline his kids? There is an idiom here in the Hebrew just after this statement of cutting off from the tents of Jacob. The ESV, it reads, of the man who does this. But the idiom is almost impossible to translate into English from Hebrew. Uh, I think the NASB, though, has the best crack at it when it reads, everyone who awakes and answers. Uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum explains that this idiom is its a figure of speech uh, and it, it just implies totality. So there would be a totality of judgment here and, and those guilty of this abomination of this profanity would be totally cut off. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, God will excise this root-bearing poisonous fruit out of the covenant community. He will cut it out like a cancer from the body. And this second half here of verse 12, it flows into our third and final uh, reality to be discussed today. Not disunity, idolatry. Now we're going to move on to divorce, verses 13 to 16. From this abomination of idolatry and profaning of the Lord's sanctuary, verse 12, um, Malachi says, you bring your offerings to the Lord. of, to the Lord." And now here in verse 18, he says, but you, you come to the altar, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping, with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts what you have to offer from your hand. Recall earlier that I said this word, bagad, um, faithlessness, treachery, it's related to this other Hebrew word, beged, which means covering or garment. That's what's now happening here. These abominable, profaning people who are, were tearing down the name of God by their disunity and their idolatry were coming to make sacrifice, and God, guess what? God wouldn't have a bar of it. So they wept and they wailed and they covered their altar with tears. They covered the altar of the Lord with tears. Now back in verse 2 from last week, two, Malachi 2.2, 2, God said, Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. And he will go on to say, we'll hear it next week in the message, chapter 3, verse 10, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that they may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. What we're seeing here, in other words, is that God has already begun to judge Israel at this time. He's already begun to judge the nation for their sin. There was no rain and their crops weren't growing. Again, that's next week's study and we'll hear more about that then. But, you know, all paganed up, here come these men of Israel. They come and they weep before the Lord, not at their sin, but at their sorrow of their missed harvest in this drought that has come upon as a judgment from the nation. And notice, notice what Malachi is saying here to these people who are coming to the Lord with their requests. Without a clear conscience, without shalom, he says at the end of verse 13, God no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favour from your hand. It's, it's as though, you know, 
moving beyond that, he, he expects the, excuse me, what did you just say? That's not the Jesus I know, you know. I know this is Malachi, but just put this into your own, like, understanding of God this side of the cross. It's almost like, wait, did I just hear that correctly? That's not the God I know. Verse 14, but you say, why does he not? Malachi is anticipating that question. Why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless by God, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. That's why. Recall again from the book of Deuteronomy that if an accusation for some crime was to be accepted or taken seriously, it, it could only be accepted on the basis of two or three witnesses. We see something similar in Matthew 18, a bit different, but the principles are still there. Well, here God says, I myself am witness to your deeds, men. You ask me, why don't I hear your prayers or accept your sacrifices despite the veil of your tears and your weeping and your wailing? Because I myself am witness to what you have done to your marriage covenant, to the wife of your youth, when you begod the covenant and ran off with foreign women. Now, in English, this word companion, it comes from the Latin companus, which means with companus, bread, companus, with bread, companion. So companion means with bread. And that's really an apt description of what's been said here in the Hebrew because what Malachi is saying here is that God is witnessed what you have done, men of Israel, to the one with whom you break bread, to the wife of your youth, to the one who has given you sexual intimacy, to the one who has given you children, to the one who has given you friendship, to the one who has given you love, to the one who has served you in so many ways, to the one that you eat breakfast with, who has suffered long and hard with your idiosyncrasies and your eye twitches, who celebrates Christmas with your difficult in-laws, who thinks to make you tea when you've got a snotty nose and the man flu. God says, I'm witness to what you have done to her, I'm witness to what you have done to the one with whom you break bread, to your companion, when you left, when you lied to her, when you walked out on her and the kids and ran off with this pagan love affair of yours to leave her on the street. I watched that happen. God says, I watched you make the vow and I watched you walk away from it. And that's why I'm not listening to your prayers. Oh, he, you know, where, where is he? I'm not going to move my towards your ear. But he's moving in judgment, in judgment, with righteous anger. Why won't God remove his judgment from this nation? Verse 13, because here, that's, that's a question of verse 13, because here, verse 14, your homes have been corrupted and your fathers and husbands have dropped the ball. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. The strength of a nation is found in the home. This is why we should have a vested interest in what our nation has to say about the family unit. Unless the Lord is over your house and thus over your city and your country, because what is a city or a country but the accumulation of people who make up families, his blessing is gone and you can't do anything to try and improve it. It's like trying to build a house out of water. It's just not going to stand. But look, look what we've done, Lord, right? We've given so much of our time, of our efforts to church. We've hosted social events. We've had Bible study in our house. We've had the youth over. I've even preached, Lord. Look at this. 
God says through Malachi, yeah, but you're corrupt at the level of your heart and I'm witness to this in your home. (laughs) This is difficult for me to be preaching here in front of my wife, I tell you that. Not because I'm running away with pagan wives, just to be very clear. But because how many times have my prayers been ignored by the Lord because my heart is not in the right place? How many prayers of mine have been hindered for my children because my heart is not in the right place? Just keep in mind, Just let, let's just disclaim everything I'm saying now with this very important point. What is pleasing to the Lord? It's not perfection. We're not talking about that. Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken spirit and a contrite heart he will not despise. This is not about perfection. This is about coming to the altar with a contrite and broken heart, tears that are real for the injury that you have called to the name of Jesus, not the fact that you can't get your harvest sorted out (laughs) while you're running the town with some other lady that's not your wife. This is the issue that we're dealing with here as we come to this altar. That's why I will minister and witness with any man with a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Of course, there are limitations to that, social consequences that come with certain sins. The New Testament makes that clear. But give me a man who's repentant and I'll work with him any day. I'll be proud to because that's what Christianity is all about. But this message, again, the principle here is clear. Married or not, ministry begins at home. These Jewish men were but God, faithless and treacherous to their marriage covenant, and God will not be mocked. To think you're religious while abandoning your marital covenant, while you get rid of your wife and you put some young pagan pup in her place because you're tired of her and you find some excuse to get around your divorce and you find some priest to sanction it who will affirm your actions so you can go on and make a sacrifice and launder your actions under the guise of being religious by coming to the temple and weeping and wailing, that is an abomination. That is sickening to the Lord. That is profanity and God will not be mocked. Verse 15, did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Well, if that wasn't enough, here Malachi now connects the significance of marriage to parenting. And he says, in effect, if you want godly offspring, you have to raise them in a faithful home where dads and husbands, mums and wives are committed to the covenant that they're in as a married couple. You know, Christian parents, we're a funny bunch of people. We do all sorts of sophisticated things to raise and to rear godly little children, withholding all sorts of carnal little pleasures from our beautiful children. But mums and dads, if you don't openly love each other and honour God in front of your kids, I don't care how many Bible verses your kid can quote, it's it's not gonna it's not gonna work. And I'm sitting with you right now, taking this with you, okay? More than how much we affirm our kids, more than how much we, you know, get them into healthy sleep rhythms or make sure they eat the right food or make sure they get a good education or we get there to soccer and encourage them. More than all of that, you love your kids by loving your spouse in a God-honouring covenant. Because this is, this, this is where your family becomes a place of shalom, of peace, of harmony. If there's Bogart at the top, it'll 
they'll soak it up like a sponge because they're watching and they're listening. And that's not like overnight, right? Casting crowns, it's a slow fade. It's a slow fade when you give yourself away. It's a slow fade when black and white turn to grey. Thoughts invade. Choices are made. A price is paid when you give yourself away. People never crumble in a day. Daddies never crumble in a day. You don't roll out of bed and run off with a pagan wife. (laughs) It's a slow fade. It's a slow fade. If there is Bogard from the top, it will be soaked up like a sponge and that will be over a protracted period of time. But if there is shalom, that will be soaked up like a sponge and again, that will be over a protracted period of time. And if there's a conviction here, like there is for me, believe you me, if there's a conviction here, take encouragement that there's day and breath in your lungs. So let's work on this. It's not too late. It's not too late. But here is the reality of the situation if we don't. This is not just uncomfortable Old Testament, fire and brimstone. This is 1 Peter 3, 7. Husband, treat her, your wife, as you should, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing her honour as the woman that she is. Don't cover the altar with tears for your ministry or for even your children or whatever it is when you're not honouring God in your marriage covenant because you'll be hindering your prayers. Malachi, Peter, Old Testament, New Testament, Israel, church. And look, this is, again, let me be very clear, one of those practical places where there are exceptions and clarifications and we need to pause and we need to tease them out and work through them. But keeping within our scope for today, I believe this is the will of the Lord here. A bagard community, a faithless community, is a community with a worship problem. That's what's going on here. That's, that's why what's going on at home is really, at the end of the day, a direct correlation to your worship of God. Finally, verse 16. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless for God. Again, the ESV that I'm I'm teaching from here, I don't really think it brings out the force of the Hebrew. I think the NASB translation does best, and I'll just read that one out for you. I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Few texts are as strong and forthright in handling certain social issues amongst God's people than this text before you right now. Nowhere else in the Bible is divorce condemned in such explicit terms. The Hebrew phrase here is jarring. It says, transliteration, I hate, I am hating. The participle here suggests continuity the lord habitually and continually hates divorce like hates it again there are so many practical questions here so many exception clauses so many what about this situation what about that situation i didn't have an an option you know what about that what about that the bible does have things to say about those But for now, this is the heart of the Lord, and I think we should bear this in mind even when we do get to some of the other discussions, particularly Jesus in Matthew 19 about marriage and divorce. Because even with his answer there, this is still the heart of the Lord. 
He hates divorce. Why? Well, again, this word beget or garment, closely tied to bogad, is used here. Malachi is saying that a divorce is analogously, listen to this, in this, in this context of the divorce he's talking about, a divorce is analogously like a man putting his garment around his wife and then under the cover of his supposed protection of love and care and, and everything, his divorce is like, it's like he's mugging her while he's meant to be protecting her. He's doing violence to her under the cloak of, under the veil of a marital covenant. He's used it for sex, he's taking children, then he leaves her on the street while he heads off to the pagan party. It's so antithetical, it's so bogard, so faithless, so treacherous, so again, it's just so against what marriage is meant to be, right? This, this reflection of the selfless love between a husband and a wife that models Christ's love for his church. So, look, that's where our passage ends for today, and I'm, I'm out of time, but I just want to sum up with a couple of points here real quick. Real quick, I promise that. Um, we've looked at disunity, idolatry, and divorce. And all three, I believe, the will of God is plain. Um, don't well, God, Don't be faithless, treacherous to one another. Don't break promises. Don't let others down. Don't neglect your covenant duties. Keep your word and your witness. And by way of closure, let me just say this. I'm convinced that in our day, uh, our post-Christian age, where there really isn't any sort of assumed knowledge of the things of God, the best apologetic for the gospel that we hold dear and that we preach and proclaim here from the pulpit is to witness to the world the opposite of these realities. Not disunity, but unity. God's people. Unity for you and I, that looks like all the different spheres are a part of, but for the church it looks like the people next to you. Have a look. It's us. Not idolatry, but worship. Worship is not an act of singing certain songs on a Sunday. It is totalizing on your life. It is totalizing to the point where your conscience is quickened by the holiness of God. Your mind is by the truth of God. Your imagination is purged by the beauty of God. And your heart is just overwhelmed by the love of God. It is intoxicating. That is worship. It's holistic. And not divorce, but marriage. If you believe that marriage is sacred and by definition obtains only between a man and a woman under God, if you believe that, as I do, then in a day and age where such beliefs are so often considered wrong, hurtful and even hateful, we can yet argue for the truth of our belief, if not in word, then at least in witness. And I know of no better way to make that case to our country for a heterosexual, monogamous, God-honouring marriage than by being in a heterosexual, monogamous, God-honouring marriage. Husbands, wives, your marriage is a witness to the world of what it is you believe. And if you give false witness in that place, you're speaking way beyond your station to the very character of God. And those of us who are single, right, you don't, not yet married, you don't get off the hook here either, by the way. Because we're all in a covenant community of God, first of all. Secondly, we're all called to worship in spirit of truth. So you're with us tracking. But even here in the context of marriage, you don't get off the hook because though you may not be married, your God-honoring sexual purity in your singleness is itself witness to the sanctity and marriage 
and shalom of God's created design. So help us in witnessing to the world God's plan and purposes, good plans and purposes for his people. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we we need to check. We needed this text just to check our religion, to check, to make sure that it goes as far as our homes. Uh, Father, I just, I'm personally so convicted by what it is that we've read here. I just pray that we would be faithful to not use each other for our own passions or desires. Father, that we would, you know, we're a people who struggle in our quiet times, much less loving in a way that's in keeping with the Trinity. But that's the very thing that you pray for us in John 17, that we would be united as you are united. And that is a high and a holy calling that, Lord, is only conceivably possible through the power of your spirit and only actually possible because of you, in you. But, Father, it's something that you call us to all the same. And the great temptation for Israel in the Old Testament, it's really the same for us here today in the church. You know, we tend to forget that we're pilgrims in this world, not natives in this world. Father, may we be a people who, so far as it depends upon us, create and maintain spaces of shalom, whether that's at home or actually whether that's in the quietness of our own hearts before you with a clear conscience, as as Paul says to Timothy, whether that's in our family unit, our marriages or at home, whether that's here at church amongst your people, whether that's at work, whether that's as residents of Nui, whether that's as citizens of Australia, there's so many pressures that are coming to really rupture the uh, the social cohesion that holds us all together as a people. So many opportunities to jump on the latest political issue, the latest vaccine that is or is not handed out. Lord, what unites us is so greater than what divides us. May we be a people who remember that reality. May we be a, may we be a people who are mindful of the mind that we're called to have, Christ. Again, a high and holy calling that that abandoned heaven and accommodated to earth in the form of a man and died for sins not his own. Lord, when we check the reality of the calling you put upon our lives, it really is disheartening to see the things that we're so willing to divide over. And at the same time, Father, it is such a challenge that we need each other to be spurring one another on towards these ends that you've called us to. So, Lord, I just... uh, Pray that we would be a people that would be marked by our unity, marked by our shalom, and that, Lord, this town of ours would be infected by Calvary Chapel, Newcastle, that though other things may be said about us, it could not be said that we are a place of bad faith. And so, Lord, we commit all of this to you now in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and we just say, help us because we need help in this journey. Amen. Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. If you'd like to check out more of our teachings, please visit ccn.org.au forward slash teachings.